1: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, a new show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. In the six years How To Academy has been hosting live talks and debates in central London, we've welcomed some of the world's most renowned scholars, but few who've made more tangible impact than Professor Cass Sunstein. Cass's ideas have influenced public policy from Obama's White House to 10 Downing Street under David Cameron, and far, far beyond. Nudge, the book he co-authored with Nobel Laureate Richard Thaler, is perhaps the most influential work ever written in the field of behavioural economics, and Cass's 2016 book, The World According to Star Wars, is the best book that any Harvard professor of law has yet produced about a galaxy far, far away. Cass joined the How To Academy to talk about how change happens, his new work explaining the science of social movements. The Answers Within are the culmination of more than two decades of research and present nothing less than a manual for kickstarting or stopping social change in any walk of life. After Cass's talk, LBC presenter Matthew Stadlin and I visited him in his room at the Ritz and discovered how social science can explain Taylor Swift's rise to fame, what to do about climate change, and when breaking the law can be justified.
2: Cass Sunstein, absolutely brilliant to spend time with you. I can honestly say that this is a pleasure and a privilege, and where better to do it than in your bedroom in the Ritz?
0: Yes, though we've just met, so this is an interview. And, uh
2: In very simple terms, tell me how I can make change happen?
0: Well, one way to do it is to give clarity to other people that what you think and care about is something that a lot of people think and care about. So often movements, small and large, are stuck because people who have a conviction think they're isolated in that conviction. So if you indicate that your view, let's say it's a political view, or a view about a book, or a view about a new uh, singer is uh, widely shared, a lot of people you know think that, then you can fuel uh, a little process that can become a movement.
2: Am I more likely as an individual to nudge others into changing or to unleash some sort of societal avalanche of change?
0: Well, for any individual, it's hard to have the kind of megaphone that can create massive social change. Uh, Nudges sometimes do create massive social change. So if a private company, let's call it a soft drink company, starts uh, uh, calling its drink by a name that people love, Pepsi Max is one, it can fuel movement. Or if there's a law that says people are automatically enrolled in, let's say, a savings program or in uh, clean energy, that can create very large social change. At the individual level, if we can signal that what we think is an emerging idea – and that the course of history is on the side of that idea. It might involve animal welfare, it might involve clean air, it might involve Brexit. In fact, Brexit succeeded and ran into trouble, partly because of the processes uh, we're right now discussing. Then individuals can move at least dozens, and if, with some luck, hundreds of other individuals.
2: And what role does technology play in this? Because it seems to me that platforms like Twitter can be incredibly empowering of the individual.
0: Yeah, completely. So with Twitter, you can be a little bit like a television show from your hotel room or from your uh, office. And that means you can, if you're lucky, say something that a lot of people will hear immediately if you have, let's say, a 1,000 or 2,000 followers. And even if you only have 100 or 40 followers, there's a chance that one of them is going to have a lot of followers and be interested in what you have to say. So there are movements with respect to products that have been fueled by people who don't have a ton of followers who indicate something is great or it's the coming thing. It might involve a laptop, it might involve a phone, and that can produce uh, energy that can move, move a whole market.
2: And to what extent do change makers use the law, harness the law, or sometimes, of course, work against the law. The law is an area of one of the many areas of your expertise. But you, there are differences there, and, and, and change makers, I sense, can both work with the law, as I say, or against it, in tension with it.
0: Yeah, and both of them are cooler, I think, than uh, might seem. That is, I love the law, but people don't typically think of the law as cool. But the question you ask raises two pretty interesting uh, phenomena. One is you get a law in place, and then the people who want that law to matter are automatically empowered to make it so. So all over the world, there are laws, for example, that forbids smoking in public buildings. And those laws, you might think, when they go against the culture and the community to which they apply, uh, would be just like paper and that people would smoke. Or they'd be paper plus police. People would smoke until the police come. But that's not what happens. What happens is the law forbids smoking in public places, and then people stop smoking in public places. And it's because the law has expressive power, which people hear a signal. It's like there's a loud voice saying, don't. And also people who agree with the law automatically have a uh, billy club that they can use against people who violate it even if they themselves are not the police and don't have a billy club. They can say, you're breaking the law. And that has been uh, a reason that in the, in the case of anti-smoking uh, laws, we've had compliance without enforcement. And for some anti-discrimination laws, sometimes the same thing has happened where someone might discriminate uh, on the basis of race or gender. And uh, the idea the law will actually intervene, that's really unlikely. It can happen, but it doesn't happen nearly as much as discrimination happens. But someone who's in the vicinity will say, you know, be careful. The law doesn't allow that. And that way the law turns out to promote social change much more successfully uh, than it ought to, really, given limited enforcement resources. And on the fact that the law can work the other way, um, there's an old term from social psychology called reactance, which means that people often get upset if the law law or a person tells them not to do something. So there's a kind of cry of the human spirit that goes, don't tell me what I can't do. And that can mean that the law can come into play. And then people, either because they show it's an ugly word, reactance, they think, no, I'm I'm a person. You're not my boss. And then they violate it. And the law actually undermines itself in that way. Or what can happen is that the existence of law, uh, if it offends people's moral commitments, can make them engage in civil disobedience with the thought that civil disobedience can fuel the movement. And Gandhi in India used civil disobedience as a kind of foundation. And Martin Luther King did the same thing in the United States.
2: And I'm imagining, Cass, that you think there are certain countries and certain periods in history where breaking the law can be justified, that the law in and of itself is not an inalienable good.
0: I agree with that, but I put it in really tiny font and maybe the opposite of bold, really light. And the reason I do that is I'm a lawyer, and I think that the risk in many places is that people will create uh, chaos and, and harm if they take their own conscience as the lawgiver rather than the law. So the strong presumption should be that you obey the law, and if you want it to be changed, you use mechanisms other than disobedience as a way of getting it changed. The fact that what you just said I agree with, but in uh, small font, uh, light letters, is the reason it's, it's true is that in some cases it's the only thing you got. Uh, and if you are going to engage in civil disobedience, you shouldn't harm anybody Um, You should be prepared to take the consequences and you should have reason for a very clear conviction that the cause for which you are standing, it really is in the right. I'm
2: curious to what extent you think that the big changes in history, looking backwards, have been inevitable and to what extent you attribute these changes to individuals without whom perhaps they wouldn't have happened.
0: Um, History is only run once. Which is kind of a cliche, but it has a lot more power than uh, it seems, I think. At least I've learned that in the work that led up to the book. And the, the upshot of the history is only run once is that we don't see the counterfactual histories that, and this is the answer to the question, your question, that could easily have arisen if one person or one event went the other way. So uh, Nazism could was very far from inevitable. Basically 112 things could have stopped it. And the election of President Trump more recently wasn't inevitable. There, I could mention five things that could have prevented that. And the success of the uh, Paris Accord recently, very far from inevitable, though uh, history-making. So whether you think, you know, everyone— I hope, thinks that Hitler's rise was a horrific thing on the election of President Trump or the Paris Accord. People have different views, but good things and bad things both are more often a product of serendipitous small factors uh, than we tend to think.
2: And that, in a sense, is terrifying, but it's also empowering. I think in a British political context, I'm not going to try to persuade you to give your view on Brexit, but I think, of course, of David Cameron, our former Prime Minister's decision to call a referendum on the European Union question. Had he not done that, we can speculate as to whether this would have happened at some point as some sort of inevitable sweep of history. But it's quite possible, I think, that it wouldn't. And therefore that man's decision to hold that referendum, to give us that chance, although of course we then voted for it in the 2015 general election, which affirmed it, if we hadn't voted for a Tory government, then that wouldn't have happened. But his decision to tempt us with that poison chalice, has led to a divided country that may remain divided along these lines for years to come. So that is an example, isn't it, of an individual making what many think is a catastrophic decision, although in his case, as I say, he was then backed up by the electorate.
0: I agree entirely with the thrust of what you said. Uh, I'd be agnostic as an outsider on exactly how to think about the policy issues. But the idea that Brexit is historically inevitable in some sense is probably preposterous. And it's much better to think that there were decisions made, for better or for worse, uh, not only by Prime Minister Cameron, but probably by a whole bunch of other people uh, who were for or against that uh, made this happen. And I would say what you said about Brexit is true of a lot of things. Without the assassination of uh, President Kennedy, the arc of world history would have unfolded in a very different way. That's one example. And that could easily have been avoided. Uh, There was nothing inevitable about that. Uh, The American Revolution, which I've studied, I, I think probably it is inevitable that two great friends, the United States and the United Kingdom, would not be the same country. But exactly when they would separate and how, that was very far from foreordained.
2: We must make reference, of course, in the context of sweeping change, making big change to the hashtag MeToo movement. And I wonder, again, do you think without that very first person who used that hashtag, who coined that phrase, that the sort of societal shifts that we are witnessing, and we hope, I imagine, sustain broadly if we're on the same page there, do we think that that would have happened anyway?
0: Uh, No. It could have been uh, something other than hashtag MeToo. It could have been... Hashtag justice now or hashtag sex equality now or something. I haven't been very inventive. keep coming up (laughs) a little bit. So it could have been something else. Uh, But that's a detail. It, It could have not happened at all easily, or it could have happened uh, 10 years later, or it could have happened 10 years before. In fact, hashtag MeToo had been used a number of years before by someone, and it went nowhere. So while uh, successful, and hashtag MeToo has been successful, movements uh, aren't inevitable. It's also true, and I think this is um, more fascinating still, there are social movements we never see that almost happened and would have changed everything. And hashtag MeToo, let's say 2009, is an example of one we didn't see. Or Prime Minister Z, who's working in some office somewhere, who could have been a transformative leader. He just didn't quite make it, or he decided not to run at a certain point where there's something in his background that someone brought out that made him say, I guess not.
2: We've touched on social media and its power as a platform for individuals. What about the so-called mainstream media that has come under almost constant attack by your president, Donald Trump? To what extent is that responsible for the white supremacist movement in the United States?
0: I wouldn't attribute the uh, still, thank goodness, modest success, maybe less than modest success, tiny success of the white supremacist movement to the mainstream media. I'd attribute it to two things. First is, in my country, unfortunately, there's a group of people, it's not huge, but it's not zero, who are white supremacists. Now, they may have you know, emotional problems or kind of an ambient rage, or they may have learned something from someone, or they, they consider it learning that made them think what they do. Um, the reason they've been able to do better than they otherwise would, and they're not doing well, the reason they've been able to do better than they otherwise would is that they've been able to find like minded others partly by virtue of uh, new media and partly by virtue of the organizational, let's say, uh, determination of some of their fellow white supremacists And the process we're now into is that uh, people sometimes falsify what they believe because they think it's inconsistent with social norms, and white supremacists have often done that. That's a good thing. And sometimes people are basically just going about their lives and not doing anything on the basis of what they think because they think they're the only one who thinks it. But if they find like-minded others, you know, then we have a group and we might have a movement. And it has been a little tiny bit of that, I maybe more optimistic than uh, reality warrants. But I think it's a tiny bit of that is probably the right description.
2: And one of your key concepts, of course, is group polarization. It's something that one of our columnists in this country, Danny Finkelstein, in The Times picked up on recently, I think in the context of Brexit, and just very briefly, pinpoint exactly what you mean by group polarization.
0: Okay, so one of the most robust findings uh, the words robust findings aren't the most exciting words in the English language, but let's get excited about them. <laughs> <laughs> we'll is do that, our best. Huh? Is that if uh, like-minded people get together, they're going to think a more extreme version of what they thought before they started to talk. So you get a group of people like Taylor Swift uh, after they talk with each other. They I'm will, so
2: pleased you introduced uh, Taylor Swift yeah, into this yeah, conversation. Well, she, Thank you.
0: Well, she is the best there is. Uh, Not the best there ever was. That's Bob Dylan. (laughs) But she is the best there is. And uh, if they like Taylor Swift at first and they start to talk about, let's say, uh, Red or the song Mean, then after they talk to each other, they will think the CD Red is as good as it actually is, which is fantastic, or they will think that the song Mean should win the Grammy, as it actually did. This is uh, an example of the greater extremism that's produced by like-minded people talking to each other on climate change, on immigration, on uh, discrimination. It happens on both the left and the right where if people think I'm not that worried about climate change or I'm really worried about immigration, if they talk to people who agree with them, then they will think climate change is a hoax, it's nothing, and they'll think immigration is killing everybody, maybe not that extreme, but they'll think it's really a, a very large problem.
2: And if we take it back to Brexit just for a moment... If you get a whole bunch of Brexiteers, so-called in the same room, who started out as moderate, perhaps, in in, in what they wanted to achieve, the more time they might spend together or the more time they might share a chamber in the the Houses of Parliament, the more extreme they can become until almost nothing will satisfy their appetite.
0: I think there's no question that the enthusiasm for Brexit on the part of those who favour it has been uh, intensified and produce greater confidence and greater unity exactly because of what we're now discussing. And that can be, in some cases, you know, a source of good things where people think slavery. I'm really clear that's bad. We're going to get rid of it. But it can produce, uh, let's say, dogmatic uh, but unearned confidence And it can make social conflicts extremely difficult to resolve.
2: You mentioned climate change. And too many conversations in 2019 about politics, about current affairs, take place without the words climate change, which is kind of remarkable. So I want to focus on that just for a moment and understand from you whether we need to be nudging our governments or our governments need to be nudging us, whether we need to be working together. How can we save the planet?
0: I worked in the Obama administration, and we did a great deal on climate change. Most of it was just an effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, it, and it wasn't you know, telling the public more scared than you are. Uh, some of it involved nudges, and many countries in Europe have done things like this, so that when you buy a car, you get uh, information about greenhouse gas emissions, or when you buy uh, appliances, you get clarity through information about energy efficiency, and these are nudges that uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They're not going to save the planet, but they are going to reduce the uh, level of warming we get. And there are things that aren't nudges, like fuel economy rules or regulations of uh, coal-fired power plants, and these have had a very, very large effect in reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, and they're having a very large effect. Similar things in Europe and throughout the world. Uh, some of these are a little top down. They're by people in governments who think we've got to get a handle on this problem. Some of them are bottom up in the sense that they're responsive, as in China, to public, which is not a democracy, but the Chinese government is responsive to public concern about air pollution. And that's contributed to a much better Chinese response now than, let's say, 15 years ago.
2: You have to catch a train. So three quick fire questions. What is your message to teenagers around the world who want to change policy on climate change? Can they do that?
0: Yes. The message number one is talk about it. The message number two is find some concrete action that you can participate yourself in or work with others in that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions some. Solving the problem is daunting, but better is good.
2: And just so we are absolutely clear on some of the terms we've been using, explain nudge in one and a half sentences.
0: A GPS device is a nudge, semicolon. A GPS device is a nudge because it helps people get to the destination they want while also giving them a route by which to get there.
2: And very finally, you, as you say, you worked in the Obama administration. I think you ran a department. What do you think you have changed in the world
0: Well, I would say that uh, I got to be part in the Obama administration of a large team of people who made the highways safer, the air cleaner, and the food supply safer. That was kind of lucky to be part of that.
2: Cass Sunstein, it has been both a pleasure and a privilege, as I predicted. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Oh, thanks to you.
1: This week's episode of the How To Academy podcast was presented by Matthew Stadlin and produced by me, Vas Christodoulou. Cass Sunstein's How Change Happens is out now from all good bookshops. Visit us at howtoacademy.com where you'll find our upcoming live events programme or on YouTube where we have an extensive archive of previous guests, including Madeline Albright, Minnie Driver and Steven Pinker. Thanks for listening.